0: What kind of relationship do you want with God? What kind of relationship do you want with God? What kind of relationship does God want with you? What kind of style of relating are you looking for? Are you longing for? Are you thinking about when you think about how God relates to you? I think a lot of us see it kind of as a tit-for-tat. We do things for God, and then God does things for us. And when He doesn't do things for us, and we get mad at God. Or we might see it as an overly, overly personal. And be careful here, because the Bible says in multiple places that God is our friend. I love the hymn we sang last week, uh, last week. What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He is indeed our friend. A friend in college who would wear a shirt that said, uh, Jesus is not my homeboy, he's my savior. (laughs) Meaning that Jesus is more than that. He's not less than your companion, your friend, but he's more than that. He's also master, he's king, he's boss. (laughs) He gets to say what happens and doesn't happen, he's in charge. What kinds of ways do you want to relate to God? Do you think God relates to you? The language of Scripture all over the Bible, really what one commentator says is the backbone, the spine of the Bible, is this idea of covenant. Covenant. To understand the storyline of Scripture, we really need to understand what a covenant is. I'm not going to give you a full-orbed covenant theology this morning for that, Uh, I can point you to some good resources in the church library if you want to dig further. But it's clear, it's become clear in Genesis and then throughout the Bible that God relates to His people first and foremost through a covenant. You see, it's through the covenant that God becomes friend. It's through the covenant that we see God as Lord and Master. But the thing that, that binds us to God is what's called a covenant. And a covenant, as we just celebrated with Coleman and Brittany a couple weeks ago, is like a marriage. It's a union. It's a binding union with privileges and responsibilities. It's a union that even comes with signs. These little pieces of metal that we wear in our fingers. The sign doesn't make me a covenant partner to Susie, but it does signify that I am a covenant partner. To Susie, how do you want to relate to God? How do you want God to relate to you? A lot of us struggle with the idea of covenant and feeling its weight and beauty and grasping its, its, its uh, nature. Because frankly, a lot of us grew up in a home where a covenant marriage was wasn't even a thing. <laughs> like it was, it was so shoddy or non-existent or single-parent home or whatever. We don't have a context for what a covenant growing, beautiful, um, loyal, fruitful relationship looks like. So when we come to the covenant that God wants to make with his people, we're like, "Eh, sounds pretty abstract, academic, and theological, but it's in the Bible, so I guess I'll believe it. But covenant is so much more than that. If I might say it this way, I would say that God wants to marry you he wants to give His life to you and you to give your life to Him in a binding kind of a way, in a till death do us part kind of a way. This is the way God wants to relate to you. It all starts with covenant. In chapter 17 of Genesis, we're, we're coming again to this topic of covenant. So find a Bible and find Genesis chapter 17 as we can st- in, continue studying Genesis We're coming to a chapter that is all about covenant. The word covenant is used 13 times in this chapter. Uh, We've already seen covenant used back in chapter 15 with Abraham. We've seen covenant used back in chapter 9 with Noah, God's covenant with Noah. But here in this chapter, God isn't making a new covenant. Rather, He's he's affirming, confirming, upholding a covenant He's already made with Abraham. Abram back in chapter 15 and in this chapter we're going to see God give Abram a sign a wedding band if you will to confirm or seal or identify or mark off his covenant people so this chapter is all about covenant and we're going to see four things about these these covenant about this covenant so here here are the four points that I'm going to layout for you this morning. You can jot these down if you like. Number one, God's people are a covenant people, verses 1 through 8. God's people are a covenant people. Two, a marked off people, verses 9 through 14. Three, a chosen people, verses 15 through 21. And four, an obedient people, verses 22 through 27. So covenant people, marked off people, chosen people, and obedient people. Number one, verses one through eight, God's people are a covenant people. Genesis 17, verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, a covenant people, number one. Look at verse one. The time stamp in verse one lets us know that 13 years have gone by since the events of chapter 16. 16, Verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Seventeen one, when Abram was 99 years old. So 13 years have gone by. And then look what happens out of the blue. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. The Lord appeared to him. It doesn't say how, but this is a theophany, an appearance of the presence of the Lord. Interestingly, the theophany is comprised of a bunch of words. God often reveals himself in Scripture by speaking. Verse 1 said to him. Verse 3 God said to him. Verse 9 God said to Abraham. Verse 15 God said to Abraham. Verse 21 or excuse me, 22, when God had finished talking. So this revelation of the presence of God was a revelation of His Word. A revelation of His Word. The Lord appeared to Abram. Think of this. This means that the God of the universe, the Creator of all things, surrenders His right to privacy and discloses Himself to Abram. Abram didn't summon Him. God graciously reveals Himself to Abram. He's done this already in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Verse 7, He, the Lord, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So I think it's interesting that there's a time stamp and then this revelation of God. Thirteen years is not a short amount of time. Think about where you were thirteen years ago. Do you even remember? I, don't, I think I was married to Susie. I think I was mowing yards at that time. I mean, it's hard. that's not a short amount of time, right? Thirteen years has gone by. And yet, there's no indication that Abram has left the Lord or left the faith. The Lord's still in relationship with him. One of the reasons why... I think that Abram is still with the Lord is because of experiences like he had in 15 and like he's having here at the beginning of 17. Abram has had revelations of God that are so convincing that he's continuing on in the faith year after year after year. This experience of God is what's keeping him in the faith. And friends, let me just submit to you, I am firmly convinced the longer I do this, I am incredibly more and more convinced that if we don't continue to experience God through His Word, we won't continue in the faith. If the spirit of the age and social media and your favorite news network your favorite website or author is what's discipling you, you aren't going to persevere to the end. You're not going to grow in holiness, form a Christian worldview, or grow in Christian virtue. The only way these things are created and sustained in our lives is if we're experiencing the revelation of the living God in His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit. And yes, this is a read your Bible more kind of a point. The spiritual disciplines won't save you, but they will keep you connected to the living God. And they will keep you to the end. Christ will keep you to the end through the revelation of his power by the power of his Holy Spirit. So the Lord appears to him and he speaks. The Lord appeared and said, Look what he says in verse 1 I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. This is El Shaddai in Hebrew, translated as God Almighty. Reminded me of a great song from 1982, the year I was born, by Amy Grant, El Shaddai. Anybody? I'm not going to sing it. Look it up. It's actually a pretty, pretty, pretty nice song. El Shaddai, God Almighty. But notice it's the Lord. The Lord appears to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. So it's not two gods. It's Yahweh revealing something about himself. It's it's him disclosing something of his character. This name El Shaddai is used five more times in Genesis with the patriarchs. Usually it's used in the context of God promising fertility to someone who's barren. It's used in context where God's servants are hard-pressed, needing reassurance. Out of 48 times this word, this name for God, is used in the Old Testament, 31 of them are in the book of Job. It's a name for God given to God's people to encourage their faith when there's a disparity between God's promises and their reality. Again, Job. A disparity between God's promises and their reality. Abram. God's promises and Abram's reality. There's a disparity. So he shows up and he says, I'm El Shaddai, wanting to remind Abram that he's the God with all power, that he's almighty, that he has all might. So right after Abram and Sarai have tried to fulfill God's promise through Hagar in chapter 16, chapter 17 begins with the Lord telling Abram, I'm the God with power. He's saying, this covenant will be fulfilled through my power, not yours. And one reason for the 13 year interval It was because the Lord wants Abram to come to the end of himself. He wants him to realize that his only hope is in the power of God. It's not until he's tried everything in his own strength that he's going to come to know God as El Shaddai. El Shaddai, God Almighty. I wonder, brothers and sisters, is there anything in our lives that we're trying to fix or change that just isn't happening? Perhaps it's because the Lord is bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we'll finally understand that He's the only one with the power to change things. He's El Shaddai, God Almighty. After this gracious revelation of His presence, verse 1 continues, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. This language of walking before God is used of emissaries or diplomatic representatives of a king. So the Lord is telling Abram that he's his agent in the world. The Lord is the king. Abram is his representative. You're going to walk before me. You're going to represent me. Speak for me. My blessing is going to throw, uh, flow through you to a world under the curse of sin. So when the world looks at Abram and his descendants... They're supposed to see what it's like to have a right relationship with God and a right, a right relationship with people, right way to live in God's world. This, by the way, makes it highly strategic that God would give Abram and his descendants the land of Canaan. If you know anything about the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, it's hundred-something miles long, 30-something miles wide. It's a little strip of land with desert on one side, Mediterranean Sea on the other side. But it's a strategic location for God's people to live because at that time the main routes of transportation and commerce between the ancient superpowers of Egypt on one side and the Mesopotamian empires of Babylon and Assyria on the other side, these routes flowed through, guess where? Canaan. One scholar says in modern terms, Abram and his family are to be settled along the central spine of the internet in the ancient world. In other words, when people flow through Canaan, and boy, they were flowing through Canaan. When they flow through Canaan, they're supposed to see in Abram and his descendants a people who are in a right relationship with God, a right relationship with one another, and a right relationship with the earth that God made. This is how Abram will be a light to the nations. This is the beginning of God's plan to bless all the nations through Abram and his family. Now, of course, the church is now a go and tell people rather than a come and see people. But the principle for us is the same. God puts His people in the world to reveal His character to the world. God puts people in cultures, whether it's Canaan or Carrollton or Calcutta, God puts His people in cultures primarily to reveal His character, not primarily to change the culture. I think this would bring the temperature down on so many debates we're having within evangelical Christendom. God puts us in cultures to reveal His character primarily, not to change the culture Primarily. In the New Covenant, the primary place this revealing work happens is in local churches. As local churches proclaim the Word of God, serve God and serve one another, walk in unity and walk in holiness and walk in peace and love and joy, as we do that, we show the kingdoms of the world around us what the kingdom of God looks like. Will that change people's lives and we hope things around us? God willing, yes. But it's not up to us. God never tells us to change the culture. God tells us to represent Him faithfully in community, covenant community. The Lord tells Abram to walk before me, be my emissary you and your offspring are going to live in Canaan and you're going to represent me. And to do that, you need to be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Does this mean that Abram needs to be morally perfect or sinless? We sure hope not, right? After last week. Do y'all remember what Abraham did last week? It's terrible. He was a, a complete scoundrel last week in Genesis 16. But nonetheless, the Lord places his plan to bless the world on Abram's shoulders, knowing that his character was less than perfect and promising to not discard him for occasional failures. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't require ethical perfection in the agents he calls to fulfill his mission of blessing a cursed world? Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient with his agents. Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless is a call to obedience. But it's not a call to perfection. It's a call to obedience, not perfection. These agents of God, though, these descendants of Abraham, are going to be in a special type of relationship with God a covenant relationship verse 2 that I may make my covenant between me and you now I'm going to argue that he's already made the covenant we're going to see in a moment that this is merely a reaffirmation or confirmation of the covenant sometimes writers of scripture talk about making a covenant establishing a covenant signs of the covenant uh, it's like Jesus in the upper room when he says when he holds the cup of wine he says this is the covenant of the new covenant in my blood he doesn't mean the wine is the covenant, <laughs> right? He means that it, it represents, it stands for, it's a picture for the covenant. So covenant here, the covenant here is being reaffirmed, not initiated. This is in a different covenant than one mentioned back in chapter 15, verse 18, where the Lord says, To your offspring, excuse me, it says on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land. This is not a new covenant. If you're tracing through these last few chapters, you'll remember that the promises are made in chapter 12. The covenant enshrines the promises in chapter 15. And now the covenant is affirmed or confirmed in chapter 17. It's all one covenant. It's all one plan. It's interesting that here in chapter 17, it's all the same promises. There are a couple new things added about kings and the sign is given. But the, the main promises of seed and land and blessing are all here. It's one covenant from 12 to 15 to 17. The Lord says, Walk before me ble- be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Then verse 3, look out, Abram responds. Abram fell on his face. This is how people across the Bible respond when they experience God. When a human is exposed to a living God, our sensory capacities begin to short-circuit, and we collapse. God is so big and overwhelming and infinite that our body's only option is to fall down. At the return of Christ, this will happen to all people. We will either fall down in sheer wonder and glory, and relief, or we will fall down in terror, because the living God has come, and our bodies' only response is to fall on our face, like Abram. So he falls on his face, and then the Lord continues speaking. He continues this divine monologue. He restates the impossible promises of the covenant. He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have great offspring. You're going to have the land of Canaan. And you got to think that Abram's thinking, you know, Lord, I can't even be the father of a single child because my wife is barren. You don't count Ishmael, so can't go that route. I can't even father a single child. And I'm living in a land that belongs to someone else. I don't even own one square inch of this land. And God is saying, exactly, exactly. He's trying to tell Abraham again that he's going to do something physically impossible, something that can't be realized in his own abilities. He's trying to make it clear that he's El Shaddai, God Almighty, that he can actually do the impossible. And it's clear here that he's the the primary mover behind the covenant. Verse 2, God says, this is my covenant. Verse 4, my covenant. Verse 7, my covenant. This is God's covenant, God's work. God is going to do this. He chooses his partner. He declares its goal. He fixes its duration. He determines the role and response of the covenant partner. This isn't a self-help project for Abram. God not only chooses him as a covenant partner, but he also then changes his name. Verse 5, no longer shall be called, your name shall be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. God again, in a not-so-subtle way, is revealing His sovereignty. He's reminding Abram of what he surely would have heard or read from Genesis chapter 1, where God creates something and then He does what? Names it. When you name something, you're claiming ownership rights. That's what He's doing here. He's trying to say to Abraham, in no uncertain terms, I'm in charge. I have power that you can't even fathom so much power that guess what you get a new name and there's no like there's no conversation we're like well you know what's trendy nowadays <laughs> Abraham he goes from exalted father to father of a multitude of nations God is setting the agenda for Abraham God is going to do what seems to be impossible. He's making it plain what he's going to do in the world through Abraham. This isn't a dialogue. It's a monologue. And this principle also hasn't changed. Even still today, God's plan for the world is the same. God's plan is this. If you ever wondered, like, hey, what is God doing in the world? I'm going to try to summarize for, it, for you in one sentence. It's the best of my ability. God is right now all over the world using His people to declare His Word and the power of His Spirit to create a new people from all the peoples of the world who will live under God's rule, reveal God's character, and spread God's blessing. That's God's plan. And you're like, John, I just want to know who I'm supposed to marry. Well, that's not in the Bible. Sorry. You know. I want to know what to do with my school or my job or whatever. Seek godly counsel and counselors. But God's plan as clearly revealed in Scripture is this. He's using His people to declare His word and the power of His Spirit to create a people from all the peoples of the world who will live under God's rule, reveal God's character, and spread God's blessing. All of this culminates in a new heaven and a new earth populated by the resurrected people of God who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. In their book, The Trellis and the Vine, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne say that this means, this plan of God means that we, the people of God, need to surrender our selfish ambitions and abandon ourselves to the cause of Christ and His gospel. That this plan of God means that the kind of growth God is interested in is in people growth. People growth. Not institutional growth, but people growth. And people hearing the word, being born again, connected to Jesus by his word and spirit, connected to one another in a local church. God's plan is to change people's lives and to connect those people's lives together in covenant community. In other words, the reason we're still on planet Earth is to join God in taking his word to people and praying that the spirit would make it come alive in their hearts. This is what God is doing in the world. Friends, we're either on board with this or we're not. We're either on board with this or or, or we're not. We don't all need to be missionaries. That's not the point. We're We're not all supposed to be pastors and elders. That's not the point. But we all are supposed to be bearers of the Word of God, speaking the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God to people who need it. This is what God is doing. So we all need to do this if we belong to God. So I would just encourage you to think carefully about your evangelism. When was the last time you opened your mouth to share the love of Christ to someone who doesn't know Him? When was the last time you recommended Jesus to someone lost? This is God's plan for the world. We're either on board with it or we're not. Verse verse 6, God says that kings will come from Abraham. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, I'll make you in the nations, and kings shall come from you. This is fulfilled through the Davidic dynasty, and then, of course, ultimately through King Jesus. By the way, most prophecies in Scripture have a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, something that's close and something that's distant. So the near fulfillment of this would be the kings that come from Israel, Abraham's people, the Davidic kings. The ultimate fulfillment, the far fulfillment, though, is King Jesus the offspring of Abraham, descended from the line of David. So this, yes, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. There will be kings that come from Abraham. But perhaps the greatest promise of the covenant is tucked away right here in verse 7 and 8. I wonder if you caught it when I read the text earlier. Look at chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. End of verse 8. I will be their God. Yes, God promises land and seed. But the greatest aspect of this covenant is that God promises to, get, to give Abraham himself. He will be God to you. I will be your people's God. This terminology hasn't been used before in the Bible. It starts to reveal the heart of the covenant that God makes with his people. One commentator even says, This is the covenant. At the heart of God's agenda is his passion to establish a personal relationship with human beings to restore what was shattered in Genesis 3 because of sin. God wants to covenant with, friends, God wants to marry you, to be yours and for you to be His. God wants to covenant with people who've sinned against Him. This is amazing. God Almighty wants to unite His life in such a way that He says to us, I'm never leaving. I'm never forsaking you. I know what you've done. I know what you will do. I know what you're doing right now, but guess what? I'm yours. And if you don't think that's good news, then you haven't quite understood who God is. You see, if 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 the highest promise of the gospel is that you get God, then that means you get the best thing in the universe. God. You get Him. He's yours. Not to be manipulated like a genie in a bottle. Not like that. But to be married to. To be united to. To become one with, as it were. To become so close to that you can talk you can listen you can cry you can sing you can you can give anything for this one who is now yours does that describe the way you relate to god i wonder god wants to marry his people to unite his life to ours And the duration of this marriage is everlasting, verse 7, everlasting covenant said again, everlasting possession of the land, verse 8, everlasting everlasting covenant in verse 13. So it's repeated here that the covenant will be an everlasting covenant. The language here is that the covenant is permanent. It's not going to be terminated. It's not going to be revoked. It has timeless validity. There's no prenup agreement. There's no divorce. I'm never, ever, 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 ever leaving you. Ever. I'm never leaving you. Ever. I'm never going to betray you, Abraham. So the Lord will be Abraham's God forever. And friends, if you're in Christ, the Lord is your God forever. Forever. He's yours. You're like, John, I don't know. I really screwed up this week. The Lord is your God through faith. Christ is yours. We talked this morning in the training class about, uh, what was it, Jared, the club of guilt? The club of guilt. I think one of the ways we fend off and fight off guilt is by remembering truths like this. We all have guilt, whether it's from something we did before Christ, you know, B.C. or A.D., <laughs> like something we did last night or something we did three decades ago. There's just tremendous shame and guilt. And the evil one preys on that stuff, and it just never seems to leave our mind and heart. And we feel so paralyzed. We just want to curl up into a corner and not do anything for anyone, much less Christ. And God comes and he says, I will be your God. I will be God to you. I will enter into an everlasting covenant with you. My covenant is not based on occasional sin, failures. My covenant is based on what I've done, period. I'm yours. So when you are overcome with guilt, come back to the God who is already there. He's never, he's never moving. He's never moving. I will be God to you. This is so amazing. <laughs> the God who made all those universe, excuse me, all those galaxies we saw this week. The James Webb telescope, is that it? The guy who made all those can be yours forever through faith in Christ. So that's number one, a covenant people. We have three more points. I assure you they get quicker as we go along. <laughs> number two, number two, verses 9 through 14, God's covenant people are a marked off people. or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This radical demand And this is a radical demand, is bookended by the promises of 1 through 8 and 15 through 22. The demands of God must always be understood in the context of the promises of God. Demands come in the context of promises. Circumcision, by the way, wasn't a Hebrew invention. God wasn't inventing something out of thin air here, it wasn't unique to the Hebrew people. But what's it supposed to mean for the Hebrews, for Abraham and his people? Verse 11 says that it would be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It was common for a covenant to be accompanied with a sign. In the Bible, the rainbow signified God's covenant with Noah and the earth. The Sabbath would later signify the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. Here, circumcision signifies the covenant that God is making with Abram. But it's not just for Abram's offspring. It's also open to Gentiles, those born in your house, or, verse 12, bought with your money from any foreigner. So this sign wasn't a racial badge of honor because people outside of Abraham's family could have it. Not to mention the fact that other peoples in the world already were practicing it. More on that in a moment. This sign signified spiritual, not physical or ethnic realities. That's why Moses is going to later talk about the circumcision of your heart. Paul's later going to talk about, you know, those who've been circumcised that aren't really circumcised. This is meant to point to something deeper than flesh. It was meant to bear witness to the covenant between God and His people to remind them of spiritual blessings, not material ones. It was God's brand on His people, indicating that, one was pledged to a master. And it wasn't optional or voluntary. Um, verse, verse 11. You shall be circumcised. You will do this. You shall do this. There's no, there's no option here. It was required for entrance into God's covenant community. But how exactly does circumcision signify belonging to the covenant community? Well, to understand this, we need to understand the historical context of this moment in Abraham's life. Abraham has, of course, been to Egypt. He knows how things work in Egypt. Moses, who's writing this to Israelites who just spent 400 years in Egypt, they know how Egypt works. In Egypt, circumcision was an initiation rite for the priests. It was how a man was consecrated to serve in the temples, to serve the false gods of the Egyptians in their temples. It was required, circumcision was required to be a priest in Egypt. Now later, you might remember when Israel's at Sinai, the Lord says that Israel is what? A kingdom of priests. All of Israel is consecrated to God and to His service. So God wants Abraham and his family to be circumcised because they're to be his priests from birth, not later in life You know, if they decide to go serve God in the temple, but from birth they're supposed to be his priests, his mediators of his blessing to the world. In Egypt it was only for priests, for Israel it's for all males. And it's to be done on the eighth day. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Why on the eighth day? Why not the seventh? Why not the ninth? Why not day two or three? Well, This is highly symbolic. God made the world in how many days? Six. Six. God did what on the seventh day? Rested. So the eighth day then comes to symbolize the beginning of the new creation. This fits with the idea that Abraham is a new Adam who's mediating God's blessing to the world. He's mediating the realities of a new world to a world under the curse of sin. So this is the positive meaning, meaning of, of circumcision. It symbolizes complete devotion to the service of God as a nation of priests who are looking for a new creation. But the negative meaning of circumcision is stated down in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin uh, foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So those not circumcised are cut off from God's people. And yes, there is pun intended. No circumcision, no blessing, no sign, no covenant. There's the threat of being cursed if you're not connected to the covenant people of God. Circumcision, therefore, is a two-edged sword. It can cut you into the covenant or it can cut you out of the covenant. Now, this sign did not save Abraham. The sign was commanded and expected, but it did not save. All of God's promises were made to Abraham in his uncircumcised state. His circumcision does not mark the moment when he suddenly belonged to God. Paul understood this. This is why he said in Romans 4 that Emile read earlier, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The only way to be made right with God is through faith. This is 15.6. Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Trusting the promises of God is the only way to get the righteousness of God. Not baptism, not supper, not joining this church or that church or not being a good person, you know, not being from this group or that group or whatever. None of that will get you right before God. The only thing that will get you right before God is faith in Jesus Christ. Period. No outward religious acts, no good behavior, no moral excellence, Will bring you, no sign will bring you into the right into a right relationship with God. Righteousness is granted to those who know they're not righteous. Righteousness is for those who understand that they've sinned against the God who made them. Those who understand that because of their sin, they deserve God's judgment and that they can't go into God's presence. Righteousness is granted to all who will humbly acknowledge their guilt before God and turn to Jesus, God's Son, to save them. Jesus, of course, is the righteous one. He always did what was right. Can you think of a time Jesus ever did anything that wasn't right? He is the righteous one. And then He died in the place of those who aren't righteous, who've done so much wrong. So only through faith in Him and His work can we have righteousness. We get what is His righteousness and He gets what's ours, sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Abram and Sarah, despite all their faults, teach us that God is pleased with humble, obedient faith in His promises. The kind of faith that is rewarded with righteousness. God's people are saved by faith, not by signs. Not by signs. God's people are marked off by signs, not saved by them. The sign of the Old Covenant with circumcision begins here in Genesis 17. The sign of the New Covenant is? Come on, we're Baptist, guys. Let's go. The sign of the New Covenant is? Baptism. <laughs> Looks like we need to do a class on Baptist theology. Colossians 2, Paul actually links these two things. Circumcision and baptism. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him in Christ. Listen to this language. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul's assumption is that those who've been baptized have received new life through faith. Those who've been baptized have been uh, circumcised in Christ. They've, They've received the circumcision of Christ. They've been united to Christ. Baptism doesn't save anyone, but in the New Testament, it is a clear marker of those who have been saved. So circumcision and baptism are similar, but they are not the same. There's continuity and discontinuity. I mean, just think of it. Here in Genesis 17, only the males are circumcised. So for this to to be transferred to all people, for example, all babies, male or female, of believers, that's not in the text. It's only for males. So there's discontinuity. But there is continuity as well. Our baptism, as believers, is the sign that we are believing the new covenant promises of God. Baptism publicly identifies us as saved by Jesus' blood, marks us off as the spiritual people of God, those who are trusting the promises of God. In the Old Testament, circumcision marked the ethnic people of God. In the Abrahamic covenant, later the Mosaic covenant, In the New Testament, it marks off the spiritual people of God, those under the new covenant, sealed by Jesus' blood. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have not yet been baptized as a believer, you need to be baptized by immersion as a believer. Not to be saved, but to unite yourself with Jesus publicly and to unite yourself with Jesus' church publicly publicly. To put on the sign, as it were. The sign is not going to save you. This sign, this ring, does not marry me to Susie. I I might lose it today. Knock on wood. Does that mean our marriage just all of a sudden dissolves? Of course not. So just as a wedding ring isn't a marriage, the sign isn't a covenant. But the signs are visible reminders of His promise and power. So why would God do this? Like, the, the signs aren't everything, but they're not nothing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've been baptized, that means for us, remember your baptism. Remember it. It wasn't just kind of a, a religious ritual that your pastor made you do or your mom and dad made you do. Remember your baptism. It's the visible marker, the line in the sand, where you decided that you were all in with Jesus. And that you are with His people now. So when doubts come and despair comes and questions come and assaults come and guilt comes, remember your baptism. Not because it saves you, but because it will remind you that you are saved. That you are in the people of God. You are in the covenant. This is why scoundrels who want to go cheat on their wives, they take this thing off when they go into the gym, right? Because they don't want people to know who they belong to. God wants you to know who you belong to. You belong to Christ. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. It's a powerful and beautiful promise. Reminder of God's promise. So we've seen a marked off people, covenant people. Number three, a chosen people, verse 15 to 21. A chosen people. Verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Verse 15, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, signaling his sovereignty over her the beginning of a new reality for her. He says in verse 16, He will bless her twice. I will bless her. I will bless her to emphasize that God will indeed bless Sarah despite her scheming and sin from last week. Do you remember what she did in Genesis 16? And here God comes and says, I'll bless her. I'll bless her. This is amazing grace. Verse 17 says that Abram responds to the word of God the same way he did in verse 3. He falls on his face. Except this time he laughs. We don't know what kind of laugh this is. You can laugh in a lot of different kind of ways, right? Is this a laughter of joy? Is this an awkward laughter of confusion? Is this a laughter of unbelief and disbelief? Undoubtedly, he has mixed emotions. His laughter is anticipating Isaac's name, as we'll learn more about next week in chapter 18. But his questions there in verse 17 show us that he thinks that God's promise of a child from him and Sarah is impossible. When he says, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old, a woman who's 90 90 years old, this is a rhetorical question. He's like, no, God, this can't happen. We're done having kids. Sarah's barren. This is impossible. This makes no sense. This plan of yours, God, makes no sense. He's still struggling to understand God as El Shaddai. Verse 18, he says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Isn't this what we do? We're like, God, there's there's no way, there's no way this is happening. How about this plan? (laughs) Me and my wife have been thinking, what do you think about this? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael is the easier, more certain, in the flesh option. Abraham thinks that the promises of God should come through him because he can't have another son with Sarah. He's trying to steer God into a more reasonable path. But notice that God doesn't come down hard on Abraham with judgment, condemnation because of his doubts. Like a good father, God is never hard on those with genuine struggles of faith. He comes in and he just gently, gently reminds him of his word, of his promises. No, it's not going to be that way, Abraham. Sarah will have a son, and you'll call his name Isaac, and my covenant will be through him. What's promised, what he's been promised, will come to pass despite appearances and obstacles. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't care for Ishmael. Verse 20, God reassures Abram that he'll take care of Ishmael. He'll be blessed, fruitful, multiply. Twelve kings will come from him. Those twelve kings will mirror Jacob's twelve sons. Ishmael will be blessed by God. But verse 21 is emphatic that the covenant will go through Isaac. I will establish my, cousin, my covenant with Isaac. This is the language of divine election. This is language Paul picks up on in Romans 9, where Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul says this means that it is it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. That's Romans 9, 6-8. God's people aren't his by physical birth but by spiritual rebirth. And this is good news for especially for any of us who grew up in homes where the gospel wasn't cherished. God is saying, it doesn't matter where you came from. Who's your daddy or mommy doesn't determine your destiny. You can be mine through faith, faith alone. Faith alone. Physical descent doesn't determine eternal destiny. Even though Ishmael is circumcised, he's not going to be part of the covenant. Let that sink into your Baptist blood. But pastor, I was baptized. Man, I got all those ooey-gooey feelings, you know. When I was baptized, I'll never forget that day. That doesn't mean you're part of the covenant. Signs don't Save. Only those who are circumcised in heart belong to God. Only those who are trusting in His promises are counted as righteous. Only those who have forsaken all of their attempts to make themselves righteous and thrown themselves on the mercy of God in Christ, only they will be saved. The covenant's going to go through Isaac. Not Ishmael. God's covenant people are a chosen people, an elect people, not a self-determining people. Number four, and finally, God's covenant people are also an obedient people. Look at the last five, six verses of this chapter. God's covenant people are an obedient people. Verse 22, When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those who were born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is radical obedience. The doubts that Abraham expressed earlier seemed to have evaporated. The text says twice that Abraham obeyed that very day. This is a swift obedience. No hesitation, no delay. Abraham does his duty, applies the sign of the covenant to all the males in his household. Notice the diversity of the men who received the sign. Verse 27. All the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner. Young and old, whether you're from his offspring, from his house or not, you're, you're going to get this sign. Everybody does it. Men of all ages and statuses were brought into a bond with God and with each other. This kind of is a beautiful picture of what happens in the church. Some have said that this is the Pentecost of the Old Testament, the beginning of the church in the Old Testament. God brings together His diverse people, officially marking them off physically. The promises of God are literally cut into Abraham's flesh. Now that Abraham bears the sign of the covenant on his flesh, he's ready to be the father of the covenant child. God's presence and promises have compelled radical obedience. Just think for a moment about what God has asked Abraham to do to himself and his men. I'm not trying to be graphic, but it's in the Bible, okay? Just think what God is asking Abraham to do to himself and to his men. Think about trying to convince. He he has 318 fighting men. Think about how that conversation went. Hey guys, you're all doing this. Put your hand down, no questions. Here's the knife. Ishmael said he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, so was he a super obedient child? Who knows? Either way, everybody does it on that very day. Whatever hard thing you think God is calling you to do, whatever command of God that seems really costly to you, it will not be as painful as circumcision was for Abram at 99 years old without a hospital or anesthetics. It's just not going to be that hard. This was a costly, painful, and immediate obedience. And it's for us to consider What commands of God are we needing to obey today? Not to be brought into the covenant people of God, but because we are the covenant people of God. What commands of God are we needing to obey? Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Maybe today it's the command to repent and be baptized. That you need to turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And be baptized. Maybe you need to love your enemies. Husbands, maybe you need to live with your wife in an understanding way. Stop criticizing everything. Wives, maybe it's that you need to respect your husband and honor him. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Flee youthful passions have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. That might mean getting off of social media. Be generous and ready to share. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Abstain from sexual immorality. Encourage one another. Show hospitality to one another. Do not neglect to meet together. Make disciples. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm merely quoting commands that come directly from the Bible. What commands of God do you need to quickly obey? What commands are you needing to obey today? God's plan is to reveal His power and His promises to a to a world under the curse of sin through people like Abraham and Sarah imperfect people but his covenant marked off chosen and obedient people people who live before his face and walk before him people who have him as their highest treasure people who reveal his power and presence in the world through faithful membership in a local church people who enter into a covenant relationship with the God who made them. Are you married to God? Are you married to God? And how's the marriage going? How's it going? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Please Help us to take from here the things that we need to take today. I pray for your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts and our lives, our situations. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful in this generation, to be your covenant-marked-off, chosen, obedient people, because because we have to, because we want to, because we're so thrilled that we get to have you as our spouse, that we're married to El Shaddai, that the God with all power is ours with no strings attached. Lord, out of this, help us to spread your word and the power of your spirit and to demonstrate and reveal your character and your kingdom in our lives and in our church. Help us to do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.